welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Good morning. Hey, you guys awake out there? Takes a little, it takes a little while, right? It would help if the sun was out. I'm just putting that out there. It's lovely to have you here this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Christian Lindbeck. Um, I have the privilege of leading this outstanding team here at Hillcrest. And so we're delighted to have you. If I haven't met you again, would you help me out? Um, like if you see me in the lobby or something, uh, smack me or say hello or something or share your name for the 10th time. I'm working on remembering it, I promise. So uh, I'd love to meet everybody that I haven't met yet, and I'm still kind of meeting all kinds of people who are here. Um, we're glad to have you in this second week of our Creed series uh, on the Apostles' Creed. Um, I wasn't here. I was out of town. I was in Mexico, I know, for Jesus last week. Uh, when Tim kicked it off, I listened to his message, though, at the very glamorous Gate D5 at Salt Lake City, uh, and he did a wonderful job. And so if you didn't hear it, this is going to be one of those series where you can really listen to each one. It'll stand alone, but it's better if you kind of get the whole thing in a sweep. Uh, if you go to our website, hillcrestchapel.com, uh, it'll be right up at the top or really easy to find under resources. Go back and listen. He did an outstanding job uh, setting up the context of the creed itself. And I think even more importantly, setting up the conversation about saying we believe something. What's it mean when we say we believe this? And I really want to underscore with him again that what we're saying is we don't just uh, agree to a set of facts uh, like a contract, uh, but we believe it's the to what and more importantly to whom uh, we have committed our trust, right? Uh, this is a, we believe in God, a person, not an idea. And this is this declaration, this conversation as to what and to how we believe. And so um, over the process of eight weeks, this is just way too short. I don't know what guy came up with eight weeks on the creed. That's me. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, we're going to do our best to unpack in eight weeks what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, all together uh, reciting the same words of this great creed of the church, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Now, I don't think Tim mentioned this last week, but the word creed itself matters. It's from the Latin credo, which literally means I believe. And so what we're talking about is the I believe or the we believe statements. This is what we all together believe. And I want to underscore something that was said last week, too. I, I want you to pause us together and reflect again how extraordinary it is that even a group this big could all together say, we believe this series of things. But if you really pause and consider that Christians on every continent of countless different backgrounds, economies, social classes, genders, skin colors, languages, previous religious beliefs, all of them have subsequently, to giving their life to Christ, said, credo, I believe this. Uh, the same, same words, same ideas to the same person. Um, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to get a small group of similar people to agree to any one thing for any long period of time. Certainly to hold it and then communicate it to another group of people. That's where it really falls apart, right? Uh, remember the old telephone game? 
like you whisper to somebody. The whole point of that is if you say five words through 10 people, it's like a hilariously different outcome at the end. You guys remember the game, right? You whisper, whisper, whisper down. Uh, the, the implication here is, is that words or ideas are a lot like matter or material things. They tend towards chaos and not order. They tend towards breakdown. And so it is extraordinary that we, uh, in that context, continue to share uh, this common set of simple words that convey foundational truths about who God is. Uh, And that as the church figured out Jesus isn't coming back right away, we better figure out how we continue to persist. What is it we believe? Why is it we believe it? And how could we state that in a way that everybody could agree to? And it puts us in what I like to think of, uh, Tim called it a continuum Uh, I think of it like a silver cord that runs through history, even though it's a silver cord. I'm about to draw it in black. Uh, But if you think about the kind of extraordinary fact that we belong to this long line of individuals that stretches way back behind us and then out ahead of us, who knows how long, through our children to countless generations beyond us, all declaring the same words and the same ideas about the same person and what is true. And I don't know how to say it any more fantastically. That doesn't happen. Things mutate and change. They abrogate. They don't stay this consistent declaration of the who, the whom, that we trust. And so I find this remarkable that we all, and it just even right now, think of the billions of Christians around the world who are fantastically, wildly diverse, and yet we all are sharing the same set of words, the same declaration about who this God is, this one whom we credo, we believe, we trust. Um, today we're beginning in a second section, so we've broken it down into uh, eight sections. I think they've got a picture of it there. So we're in the second. You look at, if you look at this kind of the even format of the thing, you've got a paragraph at the top, a paragraph at the bottom, and then you have this giant meaty paragraph uh, in the middle of it. We're going to take that meaty paragraph of the middle and break it into three sections. Uh, and this morning begin to talk about what we believe about Jesus Christ. And again, the first of kind of three sections just in the middle, and it, you can look and see that it is apparent that the bulk of this is about Jesus. That the bulk of this creed is about Jesus. And this morning, we'll unpack a little bit of why that is. I want to start with us just reading together this section that we're in. So, if you would grab the bookmark that uh, we handed out last week. If you didn't bring it back, which is likely, or you can't remember where it's at. Uh, there should be one in the seat pocket in front of you. We'll keep supplying. We really want just for everyone, every individual to have one of these. And it has the repetition of the creed on the back. So make sure you've got one. And then all together, let's just read uh, this section as we begin to jump. It's going to begin with the part, I believe in Jesus Christ. So ready, all together? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Now, again, I would like to say, wow, there's a lot just right there. 
uh, in just those three statements, there is the potential lifetime of study. Uh, we're going to do about 25 minutes, so you know, that's close. Um, uh, but again, doing our best attempt at breaking these down, I really want to underscore again that the reason when you look at this context that Jesus makes up the bulk of this declaration is that Jesus is the key to the whole piece. Now, it's all equally important, right? But the key to understanding all the other pieces is Jesus. Because Jesus is the key to our understanding of who God is. If, if Jesus had not come, said what he said, taught what he taught, did what he did, and sealed it in his own resurrection, we would only still know God as the one creator, right? We would have that revelation of him, the one that creation itself even shows us, that there is one creator, God. But it is Jesus claiming to be God, but not God the Father, that made everybody, especially the early Christians, sit down and have to figure out, what does that mean? If he's God, but he is not God the Father, what does that mean about God? Who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, who we are, what the Bible is about, all of that gets unpacked because Jesus came. It all flows out of the person, the life, the miracles, and the testimony of Jesus. He becomes the central figure of the New Testament, of the Bible, of history, of our contact. It just becomes, I don't know how to say that any other way, that um, Jesus so becomes the center of our attention that he in that way still magnifies the Father and the Holy Spirit, but is the unpacking of what he says that gives us our understanding of it and why it becomes so critical that we say he, this is a historically verifiable person who really resurrected from the dead. Are you with me? Yeah, because if he didn't live and raise from the dead, everything we understand about who God is and what is real comes from his words. So he becomes the linchpin of our theology and our understanding. So unpacking that middle section about his identity and his mission and what is yet to come is really the key for us for unpacking all of the Apostles' Creed and, in that way, sort of unpacking all of our faith. Uh, like I said, we're not going to do the whole middle section today. We're going to begin uh, just on foundational identity. Now, uh, again, uh, if I were going to you know, teach a class on the identity of Jesus, how long could that take? <laughs> semester after semester on the identity of Jesus. And so we're going to kind of dial it in today to three, what I'm just going to call foundational identity points. Like I said, things that we can all agree on, and they're the foundational identity of the one that we love. These are three points of his identity that come out of Scripture, but are well described in this creed as we just read it. So we're going to talk today about Jesus as the only Son of the Father, Jesus as conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus as born of the Virgin Mary as his key points of identity. And like I said, a lot in there, 
uh, and we'll try to keep it focused on just the big details. So let's start in describing Again, uh, to some, I, I, I feared that some would think, oh man, this is going to sound like just kind of obscure theology or maybe even pointless theology when we get into some of the finer points of it. But the key is this is about understanding the one whom we've hung our whole life on. Like if you're not a Christian in here and you look around, what we're saying is we are Christ followers. We hang our whole life, our existence, our purposes, our resources on this human being on this divine human being. And so understanding who he is and his identity is key to understanding how we go about living our life. So let's begin with the first one. This is the first thing we say about Jesus. He is the only son of the Father, of God the Father. Now, let's go ahead and confess right away. That gets weird if you think about it, right? Everybody's awake, right? Okay, so admit it. It gets a little weird when you're like, the fuck... So wait, Tim just established last week that the name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he is both the Son of the Holy Spirit and God. How is he God himself and Son of God at the same time? Nobody sees that, huh? (laughs) There we go. All right, so just checking that that's an inherently complex issue, and it kind of puts us in the deep end of the pool right away. So what I want to say is uh, shake off whatever cobwebs you woke up with this morning and let's think about this a little bit. To begin to shine a light uh, on this idea, we're going to begin in John 1.1. This idea that Jesus is both God and the Son of God simultaneously. Uh, Now, all of the first 18 Uh, verses of John are unpacking this juxtaposition, this, like I said, this inherently uh, complex, can be confusing, but worth studying statement about who God is. Uh, So it begins with John 1, 1, let me read, in the beginning was the word, and the word as an individual uh, was with God, and the word was God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that John has intentionally used these evocative and provocative words in the beginning so that we will think of the first words of the entire Bible, right? In the beginning, God created, so that we will know we are talking about that time before time creator God. Because who he's really talking here is about Jesus. So he is setting up the confusion right from the get go, right? I'm talking about Jesus, who you know was born as Jesus of Nazareth, but he is also in the beginning, the time before time, God himself. Now, I don't have time to unpack the Greek this morning, uh, but it is really tight. And John doesn't always have the habit of being very precise with his Greek. But this is super, super little section of precision Greek where he's trying to make a very fundamental point. There was a pre-existent second person, agency, will in the Godhead that was him, and we're going to get to him in a minute, but was itself God, but not God the Father. Are you with me? With co-equally pre-existent of his own accord, but not God the Father. And really, that's what's happening all throughout the rest of the first 18 verses of John. In fact, if we pick it up Uh, Again, in verse 14, 
of John 1. Um, look at how he goes on here. So he says, here is the word. The word is preexistent, co-equal, is God, but is also with God. So then in verse 14, he says, now, speaking of Jesus, this his whole book is about. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. In other words, I was a testimony to it. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18 says, and no one has ever seen God. See how it starts getting this confusing again, this mixed language. But the one and only Son, uh, this is just the, like this, a bomb goes off when he writes this and people read it. Who is himself God. And is in the closest relationship with the Father, who you might put another clause in there, who is himself God and has made himself known. Now, uh, I, I'm, I wasn't sure about breaking out the whiteboard on this, but stick with me because to really understand what's going on here, or at least to begin to understand, what we must begin to understand is how eternal, timeless, always things interact with time-bound things. You with me so far? So we have a context in which we're describing God uh, in timeless ways. So I, I, didn't, I couldn't think about how to draw this, but think about this as a box that goes out forever, okay? Because it's really hard to draw a box that goes out forever. So let's just assume this box expands always in every direction forever. It is timeless constant, right? So if this is the timeless constant space that God lives in, uh, here's where we get to start asking ourselves some interesting questions. Because if the word of God exists with God as the second person of a totally whole and united uh, Godhead outside of time, but then is born into time, we get to ask ourselves this question. If something happens in a moment of time inside timelessness, and the timeless being interacts in time, when did that happen for the timeless being? Yeah, yeah, I told you. If this is timeless and something happens in time and the timeless then becomes part of the timed world, at what point did it happen for the timeless? The answer is always is when it happened. Because as soon as a timeless thing interacts in time, it's, it, it doesn't have a sense of linear. It's always, that's why God is, was, is, and is to come. He lives in the constant present of things always existing. Now, I said this was going to get weird, so stick with me for a little bit. Um, that is why we can have in our mind, it is okay for us to think of God uh, and what they call the essential God. That's where they would live in this, what was he like before he interacted in time? You know, three beings without names or without gender. They existed before time. They created everything. We can think of that philosophically. But the reality is, as soon as he created anything, it was for him constantly. It was and is and always will be. because, And it stretches out in every part of his dive. dive Divine, that's why I'm doing it. Divine identity. In other words, any action taken in time 
becomes a constant description of the timeless. This is why we can say Jesus was slain before time. But no, he wasn't. (laughs) We know exactly when he was born, when he was slain in time in Israel. But because a timeless being interacted in a timed world, it is his forever reality. And that is why it is appropriate for us to call the essentially the timeless and genderless being God, Father. How do we call him Father? Because as soon as they took something in time, they went about saving the world in time. Jesus was born as a man, referred to the next and first being of the Godhead as Father. This became part of their total identity. Now, I just just want you to hold on here for me because it means that Jesus then really is the pre-existent, timeless, eternal, second person of the Godhead and the man born Jesus Christ in time with a birth and a beginning. He can only simultaneously be those things because that is the action of a timeless being working itself out in time. Now, if you just sat here and thought, oh, I've totally got that 100%, awesome. If you need time to think about it, this is good stuff to chew on. Like, what does that mean? Why do we refer to the Father that way since he is outside of time and outside of gender? Because that's the way he went about saving the world and thus made it, once it was created, that was always a part of his identity. And I think the prime takeaway that I want you to have is, because I get it, is that he is the only son of God the Father. <laughs> he is both God and born. He, he holds those two together by being timeless and interacting in time. All right, let's talk about a second foundational identity point. The second one is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, I feel like I have to back up one more time. If you are relatively new to thinking about faith, Again, I want to say this isn't, this isn't obscure or pointless theology. It's the foundational of identity of the one to whom we have pledged all of our trust and faith. He is, the, he is God and born. And understanding that, the implications of that stretch out across everything that we understand about our faith. He is also conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this should be, a, I think this should raise a question. It's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> How is he conceived by the Holy Spirit? How is the third person, the third co-equal, co-eternal member of that person whom we call God, involved in the mechanism of bringing Jesus to life? Did he have to do it that way? Couldn't have God just have poofed a full-grown adult Jesus into existence? Sure. And if you feel like thinking, no, just think of Adam. He just poofed a full-grown adult into existence, right? Um, did he, is that the only way that God could occupy his humanity is by conception through the Holy Spirit? I have no idea. I, I, I don't know that, that that is the way he had to accomplish it. Let me tell you what it did accomplish. Because the Bible is very clear, listen, this is important, that it started or restarted or initiated a whole new type or a whole new chapter of humanity 
through a new Adam and Eve. Now, again, I have tons of time on this, but I think even non-Christians know who Adam and Eve are, right? The first uh, physical mother and father, right? The, even scientifically, the single parentage uh, of all humanity. Well, in the book of Genesis, uh, the book of origins, when God was giving them life, God created Adam and Eve, and it says, he blew into them to give them life. And the word that's used there is ruach. Some of you, maybe it sounds like maybe it's from Star Trek, but it's Hebrew. It's got that hard H at the end, ruach. It's kind of a fun word to say, right? He blew his ruach or breath into them and gave them life. Well, this word ruach uh, is also the word that we use for the spirit of God. So that the Holy Spirit becomes the ruach hakodesh. That sounds strong, doesn't it, right? The Holy Spirit. Uh, And so what we see here in this case, since that is the truth, uh, is that we see with Jesus a new Adam, just like it says in the beginning. So just like in the beginning, this new Adam, this new start, this new type, this new chapter of humanity is receiving life by that same indwelling of the Ruach, the same conception by the Ruach. Uh, So you see, just like God breathed breath for the first Adam, here it is also by the second Adam uh, that he is conceived to start a new line of humans, a new type, a new initiate. I'm struggling with that word, but a new chapter that accomplishes the redemption of the plan. And there's a couple of key scriptures to go with here. Uh, Let's begin in Colossians 1.15, which says, The Son, Jesus, the Word, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn here is a word, prototokos. Man, is this like a nerd fest today? Sorry, welcome to Hillcrest. But it's a great word that means the first of a kind or a type, the first kind of model, the preeminent kind of a new type of those who will follow in the same type. So he's the firstborn of this new, he's the new Adam of a new type. Romans 8 then says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, right? To share in his same family line, his same DNA, his same conception. I want you to stick with that for a moment. Romans 5, 12 through 21 says, You see, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more... Did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus, overflow to the many? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what I wait here. This is the very promise of Christianity. Humanity reunited in intimacy with God, filled with the divine Holy Spirit after the model or the way of their Savior, brother, King, Jesus Christ. A new creation, a new order, a new life 
conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he started this new gift, this conception, this new life, and we are called a new creation, a new life conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he is uh, God, the Son of God, and the first born this way, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the first among many brothers and sisters. Finally, I just want to talk about born of the Virgin Mary. You guys sticking with me? It seems thicker now than when I wrote it. Maybe I was in Mexico thinking, oh, people totally get this. (laughs) Finally, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, you should be thinking, all right, we already have Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit. We're already confused and falling asleep. Does it matter that he was born uh, without being obvious? Yes, that's why it's included. Um, But let me tell you why it matters. Does it matter that he was born of Mary and Joseph? Couldn't have just been anybody. And the answer there is nope as well. Um, And let me explain it for a moment. I'm not going to get into why he had to be born to save people. Tim will be tackling that one. Um, It's a good one too. Um, But I want to talk about it a little bit as his identity. The first thing that it really does, and we talked about last week, is that him being born destroys the silly Gnostic idea. Do you remember that word, Gnostic? Uh, That he wasn't really flesh, that he only appeared to be human, which is a hard line to toe when he has been born from the womb of Mary. Uh, He is truly physical, incarnate, a real human with a real human soul and real human problems, temptations, proclivities, tiredness, physicality, food, digestion. Uh, Like when I want to shock people, I say, you know, Jesus ate food and pooped. And that usually is like, that's too much. You know, you can't say that. Uh, Yes, he was a man, like a real person, Uh, really in the flesh, which is a key point of his identity that we associate with. The only difference is that he had all of our physicality, all of our proclivity. He just did not sin in his life. This is what separates him from us, but makes him our great representative and our advocate. And the implications of his actual birth, like I said, go on. But I just want to highlight one that comes out of Hebrew chapter 4, which says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness or empathize, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. He becomes our perfect advocate, our point of contact, a point of understanding. How do we we talk to God if we do not talk through Jesus For the Father and the Son before the incarnation of Jesus are beyond our reckoning and discussion. But since he took on flesh, we may, in a sense, look him eye to eye. Bring him our humanity as he has lived his humanity. Um, I'll take just a second more and say, what about Mary and Joseph? Why is it a point, born of the Virgin Mary, other than this, you know, non-male conception? Uh, Could it just been any man and woman? I just want to take a moment because I love this part. Uh, I love how unique Mary and Joseph are and what they tell us about the identity of Jesus. They're part of a very small and unrepeatable group of people. And to really appreciate it, you have to un- appreciate a little bit uh, about their genealogies. I know, genealogies, woohoo! I'm really bringing it in today. Yeah, so anyhow, 
but trust me, the genealogies are exciting if you understand them. There are two recorded, one in Matthew 1 and another in Luke chapter 3. And they both have outstanding but different outcomes. Through Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, we are tracing the legal lineage of Jesus to the throne of David. So its big job is that it wants to, and there should be a slide coming up there too with the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, It is trying to connect Jesus to the throne of David through Solomon. And the reason is this, because Joseph is his adopted father, this gives Jesus the legal right to be the king of Israel from the throne of David through his greater son Solomon, and in that way fulfill all the greater son promises that were made. David made all these promises about Solomon that Solomon could never possibly fulfill. Even David knew he was making promises about the Messiah, a greater son, through him, through Solomon, into the future, right? So he fulfills this greater son connection, but because he's not actually Joseph's blood son, he avoids a very important curse. You can see it's even yellow there, Jehoiachin, right? Or Jehoiakin. This is a curse uh, that we see show up in Jeremiah chapter 22, referencing 2 Kings that says, no one from the bloodline of that king will ever sit on the throne. So, but he is not from the bloodline of that king. He's the legal heir to the throne, but he is not in the bloodline of Joseph. Stick with me. So then Luke comes around to the bloodline of Jesus through Mary. He shares Mary's bloodline. Well, what Luke does in Mary's bloodline is he still connects him back to the throne of David through David's son, Nathan, thereby, like I said, avoiding the blood curse. Uh, But Luke does another thing. He pushes the line back because his real intent is to not go to David, which is his legal right, but to go to Adam and Eve. So when you read that genealogy, he is stretching Jesus' bloodline all the way back to Adam and Eve. Why go through this massive effort to stretch his bloodline all the way since his blood comes through Mary? And this is where it gets just incredibly fascinating. Uh, Because in Genesis chapter 3, when God first gave Adam and Eve life and they failed in chapter 3, when he was pronouncing the curse over them for choosing themselves over him, uh, as he pronounced it for the first time, he essentially whispered the name of Jesus. He said, from the seed of the woman will come a hero who crushes evil, who crushes Satan, who crushes his kingdom, who delivers the promise, who restores intimacy, who brings it home. But right away you should go, from the seed of the woman? What does that mean? I mean, read the rest of the Bible. It's pretty clear where the seed comes from, right? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get that biological, but... uh, He's already, in Genesis 3, you're already painting a funny image. And what is Luke doing? He's saying, from Mary, from the seed of the woman, back to the promised line of Eve, where the hero would come. The whole Bible's been saying, who is this hero that comes from the seed of the woman, that comes from Eve? 
And it's been waiting this entire time so that Luke can then say, Jesus isn't just the legal heir to the throne. He is the bloodline promised seed hero of the entire scripture. Uh, Thereby still avoiding the blood curse, but he gets kingship. He gets Messiah and he gets this promised seed hero. The whole Bible has been aching for this hero to arrive all through time. And I think just even as a foundational identity, uh, this is an extraordinary statement about who Jesus is. He is a real human, which makes him our real advocate, one who can really save and really understand. He is eternal God in the human flesh, in human flesh who has the power to save and authority over our life. He is the first born of the new creation, of a new order, a new hope, a new way, a new initiation, a, 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 new, a new way to God. And he is the great king and the promised seed hero, Yeshua Mashiach, which means the savior king. I just walked out of this message. I walked around all week before I got to you just thinking, Jesus, Jesus, central figure of human history hope of the world, light of the world, way back to the Father, extraordinary man, leader king, fulfillment of promise, the good one who was to come. And so I felt like I just had to end by saying, do you know him? Maybe I haven't done a great job introducing him today. I sure hoped to. But do you know him? Do you choose him? Are you running away from him? Have you been living at the edges of your faith with him? Have you been goofing off at the edge of your faith? Do you need to come back? Do you need to find out more about him? He is the centerpiece of human history, the eternal God, the hope of the world. And I want to lead us in a short prayer. And if you'd like to join me in that prayer for any of those things, to come back choose him for the first time, find out more, then I invite you to do so because he is the good news. He himself is the good news. So I'm going to invite you to bow your head and if want, you can join me in this prayer. Lord, thank you for all that you have done all that you are. Thank you for who you are and what you have accomplished. Today, I recognize the truth of it. I see it for what it is. You are majestic beyond my ability to understand, but close enough that I can choose you. So today, I choose you, or I choose you again, or I come home, or I choose you in a new depth, But Lord, when I consider who you are and what you have accomplished, I give my life back to you that I might understand life it is meant to be given. Thank you for being who you are. We love you. We choose you. And we are honored to choose you in your name. Amen.
Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.